The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at SlateGist.com. It's Thursday, February 11th, 2021. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If you ask the lawyer what he or she would rather have, favorable facts, a sympathetic client, an easygoing judge or a jury clearly predisposed to believe you, well, you wouldn't even have to ask the lawyer. Of course, it's the jury. If you have a criminal trial where the jury is on the record as having supported the defendant, indeed of still having their professional fortunes inextricably tied to the guiltlessness of the defendant, it stops even being a question of law. It's a question more like, how did this corruption of fairness come to stand? Well, that is actually what's going on in the Senate, and it is fair, and it is unfair. The Senate are the constitutionally designated jurors, and also, think about this, they are, unlike a criminal or civil jury, actually accountable to voters directly for their verdicts. This, of course, colors everything about the outcome, but there are other colorings, shadings in this procedure that I would like to ponder for just a moment. One is that the site of the trial is the crime scene. This sometimes does happen in a criminal case. A couple years ago, a defendant in a courthouse near Kansas City grabbed a hold of a gun and shot and killed two officers. The trial took place in the same Wyandotte County Courthouse, which couldn't have been good for the defendant. Uh, 15 years ago, there was an infamous case in Atlanta. Here's an AP report from the time. You could see how personal it was to the lead prosecutor, Kelly Hill. She tried the case in the Fulton County Courthouse, the very courthouse where the convicted man, Brian Nichols, killed a judge, a court officer, a sheriff's deputy, and a federal agent. We fought for justice for four wonderful people, for innocent people. Many family members of the victims were not satisfied with the sentence, like the daughter of a slain court reporter. My family and I watched in horror and disgust while Nichols' entire defense team stomped all over the justice system. The wife of a deputy sheriff. He never once showed to me any remorse, constantly sitting in his chair at the defense table with a smirk on his face. A smirk, you say? Huh. Markings of a monster. Now imagine if the frightened victims of that day, if they were the jury, you'd guess they would be outraged, they might be vindictive. They'd certainly be more motivated than a randomly selected citizen to find the defendant guilty. And some of the jurors, some of the senators in the Trump trial have this motivation and maybe this anger. But man, there are so many who will be voting for acquittal, who are impassive, who are defiant, who are not responding in normal human ways to what happened all around them. It would be one thing if they were pillars of rationality, if the evidence of the case didn't add up to the perpetrator's culpability. But you know that's not what's happening here. You know that's the opposite in this case. Now, I don't say this to vilify the Republicans who will be voting to acquit. I really just want to get into their mindset. And I don't want to do so through doors like they're cynics, they're feckless, some other pejorative. I, I've been thinking about this. Let's really think about the mindset of the Republican who will be voting for acquittal. So they are popularly elected officials, and it is quite true that it's not overwhelmingly popular to convict and disqualify Trump. There's no huge overwhelming, there's slight, but no overwhelming 
public outcry for this result. National support is in the low 50s. And that does not convince Mike Crapo or John Barrasso or Dan Sullivan or John Thune. I purposefully am naming the kind of senator who doesn't yearn to get on the TV news all the time. It doesn't convince them that among their particular constituents, there is a real desire to convict Trump. Those largely anonymous senators who are typical of most senators, right? Most aren't Cruz and Hawley and the like. Most are senators who just want a Senate and keep getting reelected and keep pleasing their constituents and keep staying in the good graces of their party. Most of them might be swayed on an emotional or intellectual level that Trump does deserve disqualification, but it is just clearly not in their political interest to be a breakaway Republican who draws attention to himself or herself. Politicians make hard choices all the time. And to them, a vote to disqualify Trump is probably, and by them, I mean, you know, the Republicans who won't be voting to disqualify him. But to them, it might be in the category of things that, yeah, it would feel good to do it, but it would be a bad decision. From their point of view, a not guilty vote is disciplined. It's the adult thing to do. It's the kind of decision that reflects well on their judgment, because to them and their participants and their party and their political realities, making as few waves as possible is the right thing to do, even if that lets the Trump ship keep sailing along. Sail on, no fear to breast the sea. Our hearts, our hopes are all with thee. What anvils rang, what hammers beat. In what a forge and what a heat were shaped the anchors of thy hope. I'm sorry. I always get choked up at Longfellow, and it's not just me. Fear not each sudden sound and shock. Tis of the wave, <coughs> excuse me. Tis of the wave and not the rock. Tis but the flapping of the sail and not a rent made by the gale. Yeah, that reading there by Trump lawyer David Schoen really does say it all. And by it all, I mean Trump lawyers can read a 170-year-old poem about boats and still win this case. Sail on, O Union! great and strong. On the show today, we take one of Lindsey Graham's favorite arguments defending Trump, once made by Trump himself, and subjected to just a little light scrutiny. Crumbles like decades-old parchment paper stored in a dry storm cellar. But first, when the Trump administration walked out the door, Mike Pompeo looked over his shoulder and tossed off a, oh, by the way, China, you're guilty of genocide. This is a problem, not because the Chinese aren't guilty of mistreatment of the Uyghur people up to and including genocide, but because it's now the Biden administration's problem, which means all of our problems too. Jonah Blank is back to talk about China, Uyghurs, and America's eroded status as moral beacon. One of the last acts of the Trump administration was for then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to designate China's treatment of the Uyghur population a genocide. This came very late. Was it a case of too little too late? Or was it a case of finally getting it right? Joining me now is Jonah Blank, senior political scientist at RAND, member of the Council on Foreign Relations for many years. He was the director of policy for South and Southeast Asia on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Hi, Jonah. How are you? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. And Jonah, 
Now, our new secretary of state is Anthony Blinken, and he has this last decision of the Trump administration in his lap. Can you just walk me through his considerations? What choices does the State Department have to make based on the fact that the last administration designated what was happening to the Uyghurs a genocide? Right. Well, the first thing is I'll talk about the politics of it more than the legalities, since I'm not a lawyer and there are uh, various things that are triggered by certain designations. So I'm I'm going to talk about the politics rather than about what is automatically triggered about the law. And also the politics are more interesting. The big picture here is that China is, in my view at least, and the view of a lot of other observers, is committing genocide against its Uyghur population, has been doing this for years. Now, why did the Trump administration refuse to designate this years ago when it was going on and everybody knew about it? My take on it is that as Trump's own national security advisor, John Bolton, revealed, he actually supported it. Um, Bolton says that he told Xi Jinping that uh, he approved of this, as well as of the crackdown in Hong Kong, which he actually went on record about. So this this out-the-door designation was really, in my view, uh, rather rather cynical. could have happened, should have happened years earlier. But uh, when Donald Trump was looking for a trade deal with Xi Jinping, he didn't want to uh, upset that. And um, he, uh, you know, it appealed to his authoritarian side. So he certainly didn't have a personal stake in it. What options then would that have presented the incoming administration? Well, it would be politically very difficult to reverse a designation of genocide when a genocide is pretty clearly going on. So as a matter of politics, rather than as a matter of law, it sort of put the incoming administration in a position where they had very little choice but to uh, maintain this designation, and they have done so. That's kind of all to the good, because genocide is something we all should be very firmly against, and it is something that the government of China has been engaged in against its Uyghur population. Uh, So I think it's good that we all say so. I would have rather that uh, the Trump administration had come right out and said it when it was first going on and and when the designation actually could have changed uh, some of the atrocities that were going on. Okay, let's talk about the politics of it. You said it was cynical to get a trade deal, but was anything actually gained from the perspective of U.S. interests by being cautious about labeling or, you know, just flat out not labeling what was going on a genocide? I mean, it could have been cynical, but cynicism sometimes is leveraged to the advantage of one party. Was anything gained? I don't think so, because the the trade deal that Trump got with China, I just don't see how that was in any way beneficial to the U.S. Uh, I, I think the entire strategy, if you can call it that, was simply to create an artificial trade dispute by putting tariffs on Chinese products, convincing a fair portion of the American public that China would be paying these tariffs which is absolutely false. It's not even a partisan issue. It's not a Democratic position or Republican mission position. It's just false. Tariffs are paid by consumers and companies. They're not, it's not as if this is a transfer from the government of China to the government of the US. Um, and then paying compensation to farmers 
for a part of the money that they lose by not being able to sell their products in China, with that compensation coming from other American taxpayers, and then somehow claiming that this trade war has been a benefit to any factor of the American public. Yes, that's the clear thing. We didn't do this politically and morally correct thing in order to get a concession, but the concession that we, the United States, got actually probably hurt the United States. It's amazing to think about. I think most economists would, in fact, agree with that, that the tariffs that were imposed were a net negative for the American people. Yes, I don't think you could find anyone, even in the Trump administration, if you put them on sodium pentothal, who would say, yeah, this was this is a smart way of going about doing it. And we really we we're really glad for how this turned out. Okay, so why was it in the administration's interest, the old administration's interest, to label what was going on with the Uyghurs a genocide? Why not just leave it alone? It's not as if Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration covered themselves in moral glory the previous, I don't know, 1,400-some-odd days in office. Well, my my personal view is that it uh, Mike Pompeo is uh, interested in running for president, and uh, he and that a lot of his actions, particularly in the past year, make most sense when read in that light rather than an actual foreign policy light. Do you have any idea if he did that without the input of Donald Trump? If if Pompeo just did it? Um, do you think it's likely that Donald Trump has ever heard of a Uyghur? I don't know, but that would be interesting. I would like to hear him try to pronounce the word. Not that I am great at it, but still. Okay, good answer. So now that the United States has endorsed the designation, first of all, what friction is caused by the haphazard way that it came about? The government of China would have been very, very angry by this designation, even if it had been done with all of the due deliberation that these things sometimes come with. It did not want this to happen. The fact that it happened out the door I'm not sure they really particularly care about the timing of it. And does it change anything? You know, what's the practical effect? Well, one practical effect is that it makes the decision a lot easier for Joe Biden, that if Mike Pompeo had not done this, then Joe Biden would have had to decide whether to do it or not. And now they don't have to make that decision. It's already been made for them. So even though Mike Pompeo made this decision, I believe for his own reasons rather than for reasons of the greater national good, I think it actually ended up serving the greater national good. Okay, but what about the idea that if you as a negotiator take away the stick, the threat of labeling it a genocide, that you're putting yourself in a position with one less chip to be able to play? Could we look at it as taking away one diplomatic option? Yes, it does take away a potential diplomatic tool, but at least in my view, that's a tool that wouldn't have actually been able to be played in a very effective way. It's not as if China was going to radically change its program in Xinjiang. It's a stick that would not have been used to beat Beijing. And if it had been used to beat Beijing, Beijing would have simply taken the beating and not been particularly hurt by it. This is a really big question, but does this have any chance of actually changing Chinese policy? <laughs> um, uh, it, so why do yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So why, why do it? Why, why label this a genocide? So why do it? That's a very good question, Mike, because in the, and, and we look at the same question about Myanmar, about uh, the sanctions that are likely to be reimposed by um, as a result of the coup. Uh, the argument against sanctions 
or even harsh language is that they seldom actually change the behavior of the country in question, at least in the short term. And they frequently have an adverse impact on the people in that country. Uh, the argument I would make in response is that they often will have an impact in the long term. So it is possible that this will have some impact on China's long-term policy, whether against the Uyghurs or perhaps uh, in Tibet or, uh, you know, or in Hong Kong or somewhere else, because they'd rather not be international pariahs. So it's possible it will have a longer-term impact. I probably should have said no with a tiny, tiny asterisk. But uh, more to the point, because I am willing to accept the validity of the anti-sanction argument, we shouldn't really expect too much from sanctions. However, I would say that sanctions are important for showing where we stand, showing that we actually do have some sort of foreign policy that is at least in some degree based on values. The alternative would be simply saying we do not care one bit about values in any way, shape, or form. If you want to commit genocide, go to it. We will not impose any penalty on you whatsoever. Um, so I would much rather that we impose an ineffective penalty than we impose no penalty at all. So the United States has tried to use its moral suasion, its uh, labeling of adversarial countries, maybe even sometimes friendly countries, as committing moral wrongs, and they try to make these countries commit moral rights. But China's in a totally different category. It's giant trading partner of the United States. We're not talking about Chad. We're not talking about even South Africa, which during apartheid was a fairly large trading partner and, uh, you know, significant military presence. This is China. It seems without precedent. And it also seems to me that this puts such a designation on a really different playing field than anything that's ever come before. China has engaged in this type of uh, action before, particularly in Tibet, in a non-ethnic sense, uh, you know, so genocide wouldn't be the right designation. But uh, in terms of mass killing of its own citizens during the Cultural Revolution, and uh, in, if you extend it to unnecessary deaths during the Great Leap Forward, you know, how do you deal with that fact? Uh, this is something I've dealt with uh, in the Tibetan issue. You know, one does have to accept the fact that calling something what it is does not always mean, all right, then we have to fix it. It would be nice if we could, but we frequently don't. To take an example that it was a lot, at least smaller in scale than China, uh, the, the Khmer Rouge genocide. No one could deny that the Khmer Rouge were engaged in genocide. One quarter of the population of the country was exterminated. And yet the rest of the world did nothing. We could have done it, but because we had fought a war right next door and had lost, there was no appetite whatsoever for stopping the genocide in the same neighborhood. As a result, one quarter of the population of Cambodia was killed. Uh, we didn't even stop a genocide in Rwanda. And I think a lot of observers very quickly uh, concluded that failing to stop genocide in Rwanda was, was a failure of uh, foreign policy leadership. However, when, it, when we get to a country like China, that's, it's not even a, an option. It's not as if there is a way of preventing it, but that doesn't mean that we have to pretend it's not occurring. Can you prove either to yourself or an outside observer 
that the United States, occasionally doing the right thing in terms of labeling wrongdoers on the international stage as such, as wrongdoers, that the United States, mostly being on the right side of human rights in the last 30 years, can you make the case it's changed anything? Yes. In Indonesia, uh, Indonesia had been a uh, military dictatorship from 1965 until uh, 1998, committed uh, a whole raft of human rights abuses. The U.S. had cut off uh, military cooperation with the units in the Indonesian military that were responsible for these human rights violations. And I was involved when I was in government in the process of trying to trying to get Indonesia to first stop committing more human rights abuses, but also to remediate the ones that had occurred before. That is to get the officers and the troops that were responsible for these to not be serving in the Indonesian military and preferably to be prosecuted. And it, uh, it worked. It was a slow process. But right now, Indonesia's military is far more professional, is not in any way involved in these kind of, you know, rampant human rights abuses that it was involved in just a couple of decades ago. Um, and that was due, I would say, at least in significant part to the pressure of the U.S. Obviously, not only, but it was it was a very significant issue. I don't want to go all Noam Chomsky here, but I mean, in Indonesia, yes, that's true. But then again, you know, in 1965, the United States backed Suharto because he's an anti-communist and it gives oxygen to mass murdering in the name of anti-communism. Right, yes. I'm, I'm talking about in the post-Suharto era. 1965, the U.S. probably was not involved in any way in the mass killings that were perpetrated by Suharto and the military and uh, those around that have still never really been adequately investigated. Uh, we still don't know whether the casualty count is in the hundreds of thousands or the millions. But in any case, there's no real evidence uh, that I'm aware of that the U.S. was complicit in that. However, that's not the case for various other uh, abuses by the military of Indonesia, particularly in uh, Timor-Leste and uh, in the, uh, what was then, um, you know, east, uh, when, uh, as a province of Indonesia, and uh, Henry Kissinger's um, uh, essentially greenlighting the rampant uh, abuses by the Indonesian military in uh, retaking that area from Portugal. Yes, definitely. So in the 1970s, yes, 1965, uh, I'm not aware of evidence to support it, but the U.S. definitely supported Suharto afterwards. What I think we could do is only nudge the aircraft carrier a few degrees, like Barack Obama says. But then you have a president like Trump, and he just explicitly comes out and says, I don't care for human rights. And not only does it undo the progress that we've made, it does call into question our entire policy. I mean, it, our entire policy has been at best two steps forward, one step back. Maybe it's now two steps forward, two and a quarter steps back. You know, I don't know how much the United States was a North Star on these issues. I don't know if it's anything that even shows up in the night sky anymore, how much of a net positive the United States is and can be going forward in terms of human rights. It is true that the damage has been immense and it just highlights the need to rebuild because if we were to go from that and say, okay, let's take a so-called realist position and human rights are kind of off the table, then uh, we would be basically buying into Donald Trump's argument. We would be saying, yes, 
torture whoever you want, kill whoever you want. It doesn't matter. You know, all that matters is the bottom line. All that matters is the dollar. Uh, already too, too many people think that that's the, the truth behind our policy. So if it isn't, we've got to, we've really got to show it. Yeah. And all my life, our enemies, our countries that we wished would reform, have always engaged in whataboutism. China does too. But I do have to say, when the USSR engaged in whataboutism, uh, they would point to homeless people on the streets or racism. And yeah, most Americans were actually appalled by that. And those were fair critiques, if even if they were coming from an unfair place. But it didn't discredit all of the United States and the experiment of the United States. But now when China accuses the United States of things like unlawful killings and arbitrary disappearances, and I'll read to you uh, from one of their briefs, quote, shocking gender discrimination, unceasing immigration tragedy, discrimination against children, women, and immigrants, and human rights violations related to America first policy. That has more credibility than the whataboutism of the past. That is more credibility than it ever did, I think. Well, yeah, but we don't need China to tell us this. Almost half of us need China to tell us this or aren't listening, aren't, aren't telling it to ourselves. Almost half of us do, yeah. Exactly. The flip side of this is that in the U.S., we, we can have a Black Lives Matter movement that is able to say, this is unacceptable. This, the pol police should not be killing a man simply because he's black. And this shouldn't be something that happens every single day. It's shameful that we have waited so long to have these protests. So how does that bring in the issue of uh, China, Russia? What about ism? Well, I would say that, you know, you can't have Black Lives Matter protest movement in Russia or in China, you know, that we are far from perfect. We are extremely flawed and it's, it is unacceptable, but at least we do have the, the mechanism within our system to improve. Now, will we take it? I certainly hope we will. And fortunately, a majority of the American public believes we must. But uh, one thing the past four years have shown us is that we can't take any of this for granted. It's a constant fight. You know what? You were my soothsayer. You were my counsel on this one. You were wise. You were a wise rabbi to me. <laughs> Jonah Blank is a senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. He would like you to know he is an actual, an anthropologist by training, but Rand designates him as a political scientist. For 12 years, he was policy director for South and Southeast Asia on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Jonah, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Uh, have me on anytime. And now the spiel. The problem with trying to convict Trump of the act of speaking before an angry crowd that's believing in lies, that's ready to do violence, and telling them to march on the Capitol and lying that you'll be right there with them, and then half-acidly urging them to go home with the words, you're special people. The problem with trying to convict Trump of those actions is everybody does that. You're doubtful. Okay, this is sort of the argument... Hmm very much the argument that Republicans are making, that the actions that I just described, that Trump engaged in, oh, this happens, very, very close versions, if not identical versions, happen all the time. And Democrats are doing it left and right. Like the time Maxine Waters called on people to harass Trump officials. And in fact, some Trump officials after that could not eat their meals in peace. I mean, maybe this has disappeared down the liberal media's memory hole, but you could argue that Maxine Waters 
her call to harass Trump officials directly led to Sarah Huckabee Sanders being denied service at the Little Red Hen. You could argue that, but the time frame is off. The Sarah Huckabee Sanders thing happened first, and it was shocking, and it threatened democracy that this woman was refused service of Shenandoah Valley-inspired cuisine. And you remember how bad that was, right, when the Little Red Hens police force were overrun and almost crushed to death by hockey stick-wielding provocateurs and people chanting, take back Shenandoah Valley-inspired cuisine. This is the People's 26-seat restaurant. We're taking back our bistro. So that's a, that's a key item that Trump's defenders point to, that... Maxine Waters said, harass Trump officials, just like Trump said, well, you heard today the hours and hours and hours and hours of things that Trump said. Well, here's another one that Trump's defenders are saying. You could spend all your days just rolling your eyes at the desperate talking points, or you could really dive in. So let's do it. Yesterday on Hannity, Lindsey Graham mentioned another favorite of the they do it too variety. If this is a problem uh, for a politician to give the speech that President Trump did, well, then Kamala Harris has a real problem because she actively engaged in bailing out rioters. And here's what I would suggest. If you're a politician trying to raise bail for people accused of rioting, you're inciting more riots. That is such a good argument that Donald Trump himself made it, but with his flair for pronunciation. Thirteen members of Biden's campaign staff donated to bail and rioters they're getting him out of jail, looters, they got him out of jail. And his running mate, Kamala, urged their supporters to do the same thing. It's outrageous that they're now seeking to shift the blame for the mayhem. So I've decided to investigate this. I will cut to the chase. It's not a similar offense. No, it's not. Sorry to spoil the ending, but here's what happened. Besides Senator Harris's name, what Trump said was, I'm going to call it mostly correct. Because the fact is that after the Minnesota protests, Harris and some Biden staffers, like 26 out of 2000, tweeted a link to a Minnesota nonprofit called the Minnesota Freedom Fund. And what the Minnesota Freedom Fund do is bail out detainees who can't afford cash bail. Now, Kamala Harris is against cash bail. She has campaigned against cash bail. She has advocated for California ending cash bail. California actually put it on the ballot as a ballot issue. It didn't work, but she's always said cash bail is unfair in the general. Now she's saying it in the specific as relates to protests after the death of George Floyd. Personally, I'm not convinced that ending cash bail is the best system, but if Harris is being consistent and applying her principles to a specific case, then she would, in fact, say, let us contribute to a fund like the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Steve Carell, Janelle Monet, Seth Rogen also donated to the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Furthermore, and this is an important point, paying the bail of someone, which is what a bail bondsman does, or a nonprofit organization intervening to pay the bail of people who can't pay bail, it's legal. It's all legal. It's how bail bondsmen make their money. So she's advocating for acting legally within a system, a legal action that lets people out of jail, a process sanctioned by the courts. The courts would refuse bail to dangerous people. And when they don't, the rich ones buy their way out. Detainees with some resources can purchase the services of a bail bondsman, and the truly destitute just rot. So it turns out, after the arrests, by the way, the vast majority of people arrested were let out 
actually without being charged or without any bail. And the bail amounts were like $92. And the Minnesota Freedom Fund took in $35 million, which they can't possibly spend. That's all beside the point. It is true that many protesters were released. A few of them benefited from the Minnesota Freedom Fund. And a few of those protesters could be described as looters. And some were charged with rioting. One, one man charged with rioting was Thomas Mosley, and he has been rearrested on drug and gun charges. Seems to be the only person who was rearrested after getting out because of bail, bail posted by the Minnesota Freedom Fund. The DA of Hennepin County has argued that the Freedom Fund should not have bailed him out. This DA, it should be noted, does not criticize bail bondsmen who bail out detainees for profit. This is a nonprofit version of a for-profit industry. It's like criticizing a library, but not a bookstore. The Freedom Fund says what we don't do is get into the guilt or innocence of the accused. We just think that people deserve to be out on bail and no one should rot in jail because they can't afford the bail. As of the last reporting about this specific guy, Mosley, he was bailed out twice by the Freedom Fund for $60,000. New bail has been set at $185,000. As of last reporting, it's unclear if they're going to post it, the Freedom Fund. How Are the circumstances similar, I ask you? In one, a president with a crowd directly before him urged the crowd to fight and march and fight some more, and it led to death and an insurrection. In another, a presidential candidate, that's what Harris was at the time, tweeted her support of a charity that offered relief to hundreds of destitute people consistent with the law in keeping with her stated beliefs and going through the proper channels of criminal procedure. One urged people to act based on lies. The other sought to relieve the suffering of a large class of people who had already been detained. Look, let's say a Republican wanted to make the claim to show that Democrats have poor judgment or a soft on crime. They shouldn't donate to the Minnesota Freedom Fund. That'd be a fair point. I don't think it'd be a compelling point, but that'd be fair in the course of politics to criticize Kamala Harris to helping bail some of these people out of jail. But it's incomparable to use it as a justification for what Trump did on January 6th. I can prove it. I know you probably don't need any more convincing, but think about this. Those Trump remarks that we played, what if he said, imagine if I did this? And he does say this a lot. He's, he gets all self-pitying and he says, oh, they'd kill me for this. But what if he said, Biden's campaign staff donated to bail and rioters, they're getting them out of jail, looters, they got them out of jail, and his running mate Kamala, I'm going to pronounce it right, urged his supporters to do the same thing. Imagine if I did this. Imagine if I gave a speech to a crowd and told them to march on the Capitol because of a lie and they did and destroyed things and people were killed and there was chaos and bloodshed. I would say... If that's his example of the imagine I did this, even Trump enablers would think, what? How is that you're doing the same thing? Those aren't remotely similar. Yes, that is my point exactly. I suppose if you're motivated to do so, you could see a parallel there, but you have to be pretty, pretty motivated. If this is the best counter argument, doesn't seem like they have very good arguments. One side with the poor arguments, well, it doesn't make them wrong. But it does make me suspicious if this is what they're throwing out there on Hannity. I suspect they don't truly think it's a great argument. I don't know how many have really examined it. I just think it's a thing to say to stop the other side from talking so much. Hours and hours and hours of testimony plausibly accusing Donald Trump of allowing domestic terrorism to run amok. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth produces The Gist. She donated to a fund that bails out Seth Rogen if he's ever pinched for Holden. Margaret Kelly, Gist producer, has donated to a fund that bails out senators who make really bad analogies. No takers yet. 
Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Gist Podcasts, has donated to a fund that bails out poets and poems about ships. The bailing is done with grammatical buckets, rhetorical pails. The Gist. Tomorrow we will bring you more tape of today's testimony, including Representative Diana DeGette of Colorado. But today, you don't get DeGette and you don't get upset. Oomperu depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.